Vijay Iyer, welcome to this Wigmore Hall podcast. I'm Simon Reitner, a host and producer, journalist based here in New York City. And you're joining us today to talk about your 2019-2020 residency at Wigmore Hall. You're a pianist, you're a composer, you're an activist, now Harvard professor, MacArthur Fellow, and just dreamer for a better world. (laughs) What else can I say about you, Vijay Iyer? Always uh, close to the top of many top 10 lists by the end of the year and in many critics' polls. You're just a darling of the jazz community. Overall darling of the jazz community. Vijay Iyer, thank you for joining us and congratulations on your residency here at Wigmore. Thanks. Um, Well, I hope the music does the work, you know. um, I'm not sure what it means to be a darling. I think things favor comes and goes, but uh, what I hope I can say for myself is there's just been a consistent, ongoing effort to make good work. That's really what it comes down to, and to make work that uh, speaks to people and maybe can make a difference in their lives. Speaking of good work, your most recent work, uh, Duo, Piano Setting, with the marvelous Detroit pianist Craig Taborn, recorded on ECM Records in Budapest, will be one of your first concerts in your residency on September 22nd, followed by a project that's completely different, I would say, in every aspect, uh, your continuing relationship and collaborative efforts with the hip-hop producer and rapper and poet Mike Ladd on the same night. Yeah, back to back. And we're going to get into this work with you and Craig Taborn. How much of this work is thought out beforehand, one way or another, either written down or talked about? For people that don't know, Craig Taborn recently is known for his just solo piano performance and free imp- sort of free improvisations. Um, so I ask you, how much of that sort of musical language are you employing in this duo project? And then obviously with Mike Ladd, I'm thinking a lot of these lyrics are premeditated and written out and thought about and uh, the layer, the many layers that you hear from operatic voices to electronic music beat production to these things are a little bit more, shall I say, composed from the beginning. Well, certainly the way that Craig and I have been working over the last, well, it's quite a number of years now, um, but certainly in the duo context, almost just about a decade, uh, we've been starting in a kind of open context, but it's also that that becomes possible through a certain mutual awareness and a mutual um, kind of understanding or a set of aesthetics that allow us to create together, you know. Um, I would hesitate to use the term free improvisation because, well, freedom is a touchy subject. 
let's put it that way. Uh, but I would say that uh, we start in a kind of open context and, and we just start constructing together. But having done so for, like I said, a decade in this particular way, um, it's not that we have exhausted all the possibilities, but we um, recognize certain tendencies about each other or certain kinds of um, ways of moving. Uh, and we find ways to synchronize with each other and ways to co-construct. Um, I guess this is not a kind of cutting contest scenario for two badass pianists to sort of impress each other or sort of, uh, you know. Well, it's even mixed that way, where you hear both pianos right in the center, where in oftentimes in two piano dual settings, you know exactly where the personality is, where there's there's a little bit more synchronization here. Yeah, I mean, if you know our playing as individuals intimately, then you can tell who's doing what for the most part, although actually sometimes we surprise each other and ourselves, and we found in the course of, just over the years in the course of doing this, some, that sometimes uh, it doesn't matter who's doing what, because it's more about the totality of what's happening and you basically are interacting with that totality at all times whether it's coming from you or not and sometimes that entails a kind of surrender to that process where um you don't have to account for everything you just um uh, go with it you know and you kind of build from within and that also then has to take the form of uh, a certain awareness about time and about form and about how things accumulate and about the contour of energies and thinking about contrast and thinking about uh, space and dynamics and texture and all these other things. So we're aware of all those parameters, um, but you know what's happening is that you're putting your body on the line in a way. Uh, you're, you're submitting to that process. So am I off base here it, in, in my sort of uh, analysis between the similarities and differences of, of this Craig Taborn project and your projects with Mike Ladd? Would you say that there's more similarities than differences? I'd say that aesthetically they're not so far apart. You know, um, I suppose what you're getting at is how much of what's happening is premeditated. But that's not what an audience experiences. For all they know, Either all of it is premeditated or none of it is, or it doesn't matter, actually. It's hard to, t basically, you can't tell just by observing it that something was improvised, you know? Especially now. Well, it's sort of more like you kind of um, deal with your own assumptions on the matter, and that then conditions your experience of what's happening. I don't find it useful to kind of um, keep beating that horse, you know, because it's, it comes down to a question of value, actually, like, um, you know, the fact is that in the system of, like, say, intellectual property and copyright law, we value compositions, and we don't value improvisations, improvisations have zero value, like you don't receive, uh, they don't um, accrue wealth in the same way that compositions do. So because of that, we think about them differently. But it's really just the idea, it's the difference between ideas and ideas written down. That's the difference, right? And even written down is kind of putting it loosely because in the context of, say, 
working with electronic tracks and so on. It's kind of like it's written down in magnetic media or in a kind of like file that has some interactive um, audio environment or something like that. So it's not even that fixed. It's actually more like something you play with, you know. So the question of what's uh, premeditated and what isn't um, becomes kind of uh, almost immaterial in the moment of performance because really what performers strive for is a is a kind of presence, you know, presence in the moment with an audience and with one another in a way that uh, you're really just living inside of the sound and inside of the music. And that's kind of what's carrying you. So it doesn't matter whether something was made yesterday or now. Well, this erasure of addressing what is composed and what is not, and basically making the point that there is no point to make these distinctions at the end of the day, um, is also sort of uh, within the the mindset of many of the musicians that you sort of come up with over the years, right? With, say, like Butch Morris and members of the AACM and uh, a drummer that uh, performs with you still to this day, Taishan Sore who uh, talks about these ideas of sort of erasing these lines of, of what is composed, what is traditional so-called Western classical music and jazz, that it's all sort of uh, the same. It's, it's all st- still a vessel of communication. Um, and is that essentially what you're, do you wanna, are you trying to make that distinction? Or, or let's just say here we are at Wigmore Hall, mm-hmm. <laughs> a classical music institution that's celebrating Beethoven and it's commemorating <laughs> his 250th birthday. And here you are, Vijay Iyer, being the artist in residence of this esteemed classical music institution, which I have to just say from observing your career for about 20 years, there's a little bit of irony there and knowing where you come from. Well, where I come from, um, my first instrument was the violin and I studied Western classical music 15 years uh, and reluctantly at one point well I think any childhood in, involves kind of a, <laughs> <laughs> a range of uh, levels of engagement with whatever you're doing and uh, sometimes uh, rebellion and frustration or uh, but I would say that my rebellion was to play the piano <laughs> actually like it was to kind of um, start picking that up by ear and just fish around and find my own way on that instrument without guidance and without um, input from any kind of systematic pedagogy. So it came about in that way that basically my relationship to the piano is a bit more um, just uh, unmediated. You know, it's just about uh, what I hear and then what I do, you know. But I also know how to read and write music, and I studied various composers, and studied electronic music, and studied music cognition, and apprenticed with a lot of elder musicians. And so my, where I come from, (laughs) musically speaking, is a lot of places, you know. Um, I played 
in hip hop groups, and I also took a seminar with Jonathan Harvey, the classical comp- the, you know, the spectralist composer who was a pupil of Stockhausen. So where do I come from? And then the other thing is like my parents come from India. So then is that a part of who I am or what I do? Um, that's something I had to negotiate and explore on my own terms as an adult. And, you know, ongoing interactions and collaborations with musicians who are coming, who have a background or kind of formal training in Indian classical music uh, and different kinds of Indian classical music, uh, Carnatic and Hindustani. So uh, I don't think that I come from one place, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> and that's, and I don't think many people do, actually. Um, and so basically what I try to express is both a kind of um, mobility across what we think are hard and fast um, musical systems or genres, and also a kind of uh, aim toward synthesis across these disparate fields or spaces or communities. Um, And so I hope what's being expressed across this whole year of these different uh, presentations and creative endeavors is, uh, is that spectrum of possibility. And uh, was uh, Southern Indian classical music uh, often played in your childhood growing up? Because you are exploring some of this music with what I, it appears to be a, a, a newer ensemble, the Ritual Ensemble, a little bit later in, mm-hmm. in January. Well, so um, the what you asked if I grew up listening to Indian classical music. Um, and the answer is not actively. Um, I was sort of... Uh, vaguely aware of it, I would say. Uh, probably the most Indian music I heard was in the context of religious um, gatherings. And so these are basically religious songs, bhajans as they're called, and um, and they're sort of for everybody. You know, everybody is a sort of call and response structure. and You can hear them most readily now in Alice Coltrane's music. Um, the recent really recently released kind of compendium of her sacred music. Uh, most of it is coming from that uh, tradition. So if you're curious, you can find it there. But this is like a that's as old as music making in India. Period. It's like the oldest form, probably. Um, so that's what I was vaguely aware of growing up, and more than vague, like kind of. And I found myself in roomfuls of people doing that, uh, singing in a group, you know. Do you remember the songs? Uh, only vaguely. But it was more like when I was uh, about 20 or so that I wanted to more consciously come to terms with this heritage of mine. And um, I mean, I will say that I had also seen a lot of performances of Bharatanatyam dance, which involves accompaniment by Carnatic musicians. And so I had heard a lot of, uh, particularly Mridangam playing the, the South Indian two-headed drum. And I was always fascinated by that, most of all, um, particularly because there were these like rhythmic feats that would uh, seem to disrupt the flow of things and would kind of... Uh, 
basically uh, create their own designs that that almost seemed at odds with the ongoing musical flow. And there you have we have some people doing uh, gardening next door. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Pretty good. We're 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 in Vijay Iyer's uh, lovely Harlem home uh, here in New York City. So. Yes, so you're going to hear a little bit of buzzsaw, I guess. So you, you also have uh, written orchestral works or participated in orchestral works, I think both. I've seen you at Carnegie Hall, for instance, and you're doing something with uh, Aurora Orchestra. Yes, um, they're playing a piece that was co-commissioned by Wigmore Hall and the L.A. Philharmonic and, and Cologne Philharmonic as well. It's called Crisis Modes, <laughs> and it's... a uh, piece for strings and percussion. So that's going to be part of a program in June, which will also involve pieces uh, for piano and string quartet and other works, uh, mutation excerpts of mutations and of uh, time, place, action. These are two piano quintets I wrote. I guess you can probably find on YouTube that clip of uh, me playing portions of time, place, action with the Brentano Quartet at WNYC. We did that uh, about four years ago. Despite my kind of um, admonishments at the beginning of this conversation, I do participate in these different economies, I guess. I do, like, I write music for others, you know, that exists on paper, in notation. And then also when I work with different ensembles of mine, we deal with different amounts of notated uh, material, including for ritual ensemble. Yeah, when I work with Mike Ladd, the poet, who, by the way, is an incredible freestyle poet. Like, he can stand in front of you and create a poem that feels ancient, that feels like it's been here for thousands of years. You know, he's that kind of artist. Um, and that's often what he does, actually. <laughs> I mean, in the records we've made, um, there's been less of that element, and there's been more a kind of, like, developing of a sort of libretto for a large-scale project. Um, but he's also an incredible freestyle poet, shall we say, and and an incredible electronic musician and producer. Now living in Paris. Yeah, he's been up there for uh, about 15 years. Born uh, in Massachusetts, though. True. But yeah, so like there's varying element, varying kind of amounts of fixity with these different projects, I'd say, um, from like fully scored to scored in fragments it's sort of like our scoring structures that then become unpacked in live performance through a kind of improvisative process to uh you know maybe working with a repertoire of loops and textures and sounds and ideas and rhythms and words <laughs> to then also like you know maybe the first uh, maybe in the context of the first concert the duo with greg taborn Creating from a repertoire of possibilities of creation, of how to create, like how to create together in time or in with texture, with basically what is it that we can do at the pianos together to create form. That's what's happening. Beautiful. And I guess you'll also be summarizing all of this with a talk. Uh, yes, with the, Georgina the, Bourne, the right? talk with Georgina Bourne, uh, you know, she's one of the eminent scholars in music studies today. Um, someone I've admired from afar since her first book came out. She did a, 
her dissertation on IRCAM, and she, which is the um, electronic music uh, research facility and studio, and uh, uh, founded by Pierre Boulez, that's in Paris. And she did a kind of ethnographic study of that place. So basically, she brought the 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 tools of anthropology to Western art music, which to me was this brilliant intervention to kind of turn the lens back on itself, you know, turn the, the lens of the Western gaze back on itself. And she, you know... Uh, Can you give an example of this? Well, just... so there's a book of hers from the, that came from her dissertation. It was published in mid-'90s called Rationalizing Culture. And so she's looking at the way that scientific rhetoric gets used to support these big federally funded artistic projects in Europe, you know. Uh, so that's kind of what, that's in a way that baked into the ethos of, uh, of IRCAM, which is that, that institute in Paris. It's this kind of, uh, there's this belief that science will make great art better. Okay, so for, just for a sneak peek, what what's the question you're, you the number one question you can sort of provide it that you are going to ask her? <laughs> uh, I think we'll be asking each other questions, and maybe we'll each be giving a bit of a disquisition of our own. Uh, but the frame that I've used for this entire series, and that has been kind of uh, occupying my thoughts lately, is um, not what is music, but what is musicality. Uh, that's a weird term, you know, it's a word that gets used um, in almost contradictory ways. You see evolutionary biologists talking about the evolution of musicality. In fact, there are books and conferences and compendia of uh, scholarly articles devoted to that topic. Of what is musicality? Where the origins of musicality? How did the human species get its music? It's kind of almost like a those like just so stories, like how the zebra got its stripes or something like that. Um, but there's a kind of a new sort of flurry of scientific inquiry into this very question of where did our musicality come from, our human capacity for music making. As hum homo sapiens on the right. basic level, or even before then. Yeah, yeah, perhaps before then, arguably. Although, you know, what this comes up against for me, like I said earlier, is the fact that uh, or the observation, I don't even know if it makes sense to call it a fact, <laughs> the mere observation that actually we don't know where music begins or ends, where this category begins or ends. Basically, it begins and ends wherever we, as any given culture, say it does. Which means, for example, that somebody can say that hip-hop is not music. You know, which I th I'm sure you can think of about five people who've said that, right? At least. At least five. <laughs> I mean, you, you want me, like, in rapid fire? Of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hold me back. That's right. So uh, how about, like, basically, you know, my example is um, when Kendrick Lamar got the Pulitzer Prize and then suddenly there were people online complaining that hip-hop is not music. Um, well, it's, it's hierarchical systems will deny or revoke musicality from each other, from other populations. Basically, that's what's happening. It was racism, plain and simple. So that's racism is what a, what is a tool to that revokes personhood. You know, basically, it's a uh, 
It's this uh, system of large-scale revocation of human beings, humanity. That's basically what's happening. And so the term musicality or musicness or like what is music and what isn't music, um, that boundary is policed in the same way that the category, the human, is policed. You know what I mean? So that's the kind of, uh, that's why it's a problem. On the other hand, when we say that something is musical or that that was a particularly musical performance of that piece of music, which means that there are non-musical performances of music, which means that there can be, in fact, that most music is not musical. So what does that mean? That means something else, right? So that <laughs> musicality is then a uh, quality within music. It's like when music really does what it's supposed to do or what it can do when it kind of realizes its its own possibilities. When jazz is really swinging. For example, <laughs> that's what when people will say that... Uh, Yes, there's something there. that, uh, And so obviously that is itself also a kind of aesthetic or value judgment. So basically we're in this weird critical space where this term has a way of uh, standing for a whole set of questions. Well, it's also like it's a, it, what, you're, what, what I'm gleaning from this sort of conversation is it's also a kind of code language. You know, a lot of people will say, well, I don't know anything about music. But then I could ask them, so what, do you th what would you say musicality is? And they'll have an answer. They'll say, well, it's when this song sticks in my ear. Or they'll say, it's when an MC really flows so much that I basically find myself learning all their lyrics. That's the thing, is like musicality is, a, is an unfixed quality. It's something that... Um, uh, is it's subjective and because of that it's uh, something worth exploring in detail it's subjective that oftentimes masquerades as absolute yes exactly that is exactly it that's the therein lies both the problem and the productive question for us is like um, what do we mean by musicality in any given situation or context and I suppose because each of these concerts is exploring uh, maybe you could say a different mode of music making or a different kind of way of pulling together sounds and ideas and, and expressing. Uh, each event kind of gets at different versions of musicality. And, you know, the point is like, you know, one example of musicality is when someone feels like crying after hearing something or while hearing something that they feel that it's releasing them somehow that's my favorite kind of musicality yeah and those are uh, to me the moments that i live for and that i strive for in my own work i'm not gonna follow up with anything more than that <laughs> i think that speaks for itself vijay Iyer, thank you so much for spending some time with us to talk about your residency at wigmore beginning September 22nd. Uh, thank you, Vijay Iyer, for uh, spending some time with us. Thank you.